God, we come to you this morning uh, seeking a word from you, uh, seeking your voice. It's so easy during the Christmas season to get caught up and to get distracted and, and to take all the good things about Christmas and forget about the one great thing about Christmas, which is you. And God, I just pray that you would interrupt our process, whatever that is, and that you would keep us at the forefront. Uh, Lord, I pray that in our homes and our hearts, you're more than just a nativity scene. You're more than just a star on top of a tree, but you are something that is essential and central to our lives. God, I just pray that this morning, uh, the words that I preach would come from you and that they would be pleasing to you. And I pray that uh, you would convict our hearts and you would lead us to true life change. It's in your holy name I pray. Amen. I want to start by asking uh, everyone a question. And that is this, and, and I really do want to hear from you here. Uh, does anyone have, I don't want to say weird, because maybe to you it's not weird, but does anyone have any unique Christmas traditions? Anyone? Just something that you feel like your family does, but you've never really seen anybody else do? Okay, Kathy Grant said a treasure hunt. Now, what is involved with the treasure hunt? Okay, so do you use like Bible verses or, and so it's like a, a treasure hunt slash Bible study and okay, very nice. Now who participates? Like, do you send Kathy off looking for this stuff? <laughs> Everybody but you. Okay. So the matriarch watches on and plays games with everyone else. Okay, very good. It's fun. Yeah. Any other unique Christmas? Tra- I like that. I've never heard of that before. Uh, any other unique Christmas traditions? Oh, very nice. If you crack them open, is there candy inside? No. Okay. <laughs> Just baby Jesus. Okay. Make sure you communicate that to the children, right? You don't want them mixing up Easter and, and Christmas there, so you don't want them cracking it. Uh, so, okay, that's cool. You hide, you hide baby Jesus. You have them looking, and that's, that's a nice little object lesson, right? Because what is the true meaning of, of Christmas? Finding Jesus. I like that. Anyone else? Anyone just off the wall, off beat? And we got kind of theological and spiritual and serious fast, but anyone just weird off the wall? Yeah. Okay. Kill a rabbit and have Hasselhoff? What was Hassenhofer? Hassenpfeffer. Okay. Um, I did. I do not remember that reference, though. Okay. So you want to go hunt, hunt bunnies. The, you know, the bunny always wins in Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Anyone else? Any unique strain? This is good. This is really good. I didn't know what I'd get whenever I, what, I was going to ask this question. Anyone else? Yeah. Okay, giving people homemade presents. So not just going out and buying them, but making them yourself. Okay, what, what, what are things you've made before? Oh, okay. Very cool. Do you knit? Knit and crochet. So homemade gifts that you make yourself and then give to people. That's special. That's special. All right. Well, the young adult Christmas um, 
party. I think we started a tradition, a unique tradition on our Christmas party Friday night when we had a, what's the tactful way of putting this? A, um, an extreme Christmas, a, a, an odd looking Christmas sweater competition. Is that kind enough? And, and if you, if some of you saw pictures, <laughs> we had some pretty ugly sweaters. And the point of the tradition was who could find the ugliest Christmas sweater. And I, I still think Megan's a little bitter that I beat her. Uh, she was, she was pretty upset about that. And I saw her giving me the stink eye this morning. <laughs> So yeah, Christmas traditions are fun. You know, any kind of tradition, anything you do, whether it's weird and offbeat and unique or or whether it's just standard uh, kind of run of the mill. One Christmas, I don't know how unique or special or weird this is. It's special. It's not unique or weird. But one tradition my family has is that we read uh, the Christmas story and we'll separate the Christmas story up into different parts and different children will read different parts of the Christmas story. So that's that's one of my family's traditions. But any tradition for anything to have any kind of worth or value to it, it takes preparation, right? Everything we talked about, even ugly Christmas sweaters, takes some level of preparation. Now, uh, Sherelle, where are you? Sherelle, your husband, he made his own ugly Christmas sweater. So that was a lot of preparation that went into his. I just found an old dingy one, but he actually made his. Anything of value Anything. I hope the conversation wasn't, hey, honey, I made this great sweater. And you said, oh, that's horrible. You should wear that to the ugly Christmas sweater party. Was that how that went? <laughs> um, anything of value, anything of worth, it takes preparation going into it. And this morning, what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about preparation, preparing for the king, preparing for the arrival of the king. And I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be beginning in verse 1, and we're actually, this morning, we're just going to cover two verses, and really, I'm just going to focus on verse number 2, but I want to provide a little bit of context, so we're going to go ahead and read verse number 1, but we're really going to focus in on this passage and really unpack it, really uh, get down to the morsels of what this, of the, what this word, uh, of what this verse says. So Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, I know what you're all sitting there thinking. You're thinking, Pastor, this is not a Christmas story. Why are we studying this a week before Christmas? This is not a Christmas story. Well, I will grant you that, but I would also challenge you this. We studied this in Sunday school this morning. Neither are the three magi. That's not a Christmas story. The Bible says that Jesus was, was, uh, was in a house. The, word, the Greek word there is not the word for a baby, so that's not a Christmas story. Jesus was just a child at that point, right? But I know we all really like the song, We Three Kings. The problem with that is there weren't three of them. They weren't kings. They weren't from the Orient. Other than that, it's a great song, right? <laughs> but this is not technically, I will grant you that, it's not technically a Christmas story. But what it does is I believe this shares four essential truths for us about what, what it looks like to prepare for the coming of Jesus. And that's what Christmas is about, right? It's preparation for the coming of our King. John the Baptist, interested, interesting name guy. He was called John the Baptist, not because he was the very first Baptist, uh, but because he baptized in the wilderness. 
This is why he got the name Baptist. And at that time, baptism was very uncommon. It was very rare. In fact, some of John the Baptist's critics uh, came to him and said, who are you to baptize? Only someone who is special, only Elijah, only the Messiah can baptize people. So who are you to baptize? And so it was very unique what he did. And that's one reason why he got the name John the Baptist, because this was unique. Everything about him was unique. Talk about weird traditions and weird things that he did. He wore a camel hair jacket, a camel hair cloak, and he tied it with a leather belt. And his entire diet consisted of wild honey and locusts. Wild honey and locusts. Now, part of that, I have to stop and wonder about that old Levitical law that we find in the Old Testament, because why is pork off limits, but locusts are totally cool? I don't get everything God does, and that's one thing that I don't get, but uh, wild honey and locusts, that's what this guy lived on. Uh, we find that in the book of Matthew. In the book of Mark, we find out that he lived in the wilderness, and as the name indicates, the major form of his ministry was baptism. But also what we find out from Mark, and really what we find out from all of the gospel accounts, is that what, G, what John the Baptist do, is doing is he was preparing the way for someone who would come who was greater than he, someone who was, someone who was greater. We also find out that he was related to Jesus, probably a cousin, something like that. We find that from the book of Luke. But all four Gospels, and by the way, if a story is repeated in all four Gospels, it makes it important. Jesus' birth is not in four different Gospels. It's only in two. But John the Baptist is in all four Gospels. That should tell us right there that he is an important character in Scripture. All four Gospels talk about John the Baptist. And all of them say that what John the Baptist was doing is he was the forerunner. He was, as the prophecy said, a voice calling out in the wilderness, making straight the paths for the Lord. He was getting people ready for the coming of the king. Now I want to break down his message. I want to look at three different things about his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The the first truth that we see from this is that Jesus establishes a new kingdom. Notice that word there, right, right in the middle of that sentence. He says, the kingdom. The kingdom. Let's just focus on that one word right now. John the Baptist preaching about the coming kingdom, the kingdom that has come. Last week we studied Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, which of course is the penultimate um, Messiah prophecy that we find in the Old Testament. And if you remember, we didn't focus on this, but if you remember Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, it talks a lot about the government that Jesus would bring. It says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And here it is, and the government will be on his shoulders. Did you ever think that was a weird phrasing there? Isaiah repeats it, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. First of all, as we looked at last week, all four of those names are names that have uh, governing significance, kingly significance, ruler significance. Then verse 7, of the greatness of his, here it is again, government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 talks far more about Jesus' government, about his kingdom, about his rulership than it does his death and resurrection. 
than it does his teaching, than it does his parables, than it does his miracles. In fact, it doesn't mention any of those things. This is talking about someone who would come to govern, someone who would come to rule, someone who would bring about a kingdom. And John the Baptist understood that this was the coming kingdom that Jesus was ushering in, not just a kingdom that, not just a a great kingdom, because the world had seen great kingdoms. The world had seen the kingdoms of Egypt, the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, these mighty kingdoms. And yet the kingdom that Jesus would usher in would be different than anything else. The number one reason why it was different is because this government, this kingdom would have God himself sitting upon the throne. And that's what's different. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. We talked about last week, that's the relational aspect of Jesus in our lives. But God with us also has the aspect that God is not some, some despot living far away, ignoring his people, but he is a ruler who comes to set up his throne among his people. Our king is with us. Our God is with us. And that is what is dramatically different, dramatically new about this kingdom. What do we call Jesus? We call Jesus our savior, but we also call him what? Our Lord. Our Lord. We say that. It just rolls off the tongue. Jesus is our Lord and our savior. Jesus is our Lord and our savior. And I tell you what, as Baptists, we love the idea that Jesus is a savior. Whenever I have sinned, whenever I've messed up, whenever I've hurt someone, I love the fact that Jesus is my savior because I can know that those sins are not held against me. I can know that my sins are cast as far as the east is from the west and I can turn to God and I can lift up my hands and I can call upon his name and I can say, Father, forgive me. And he has forgiven me because his son took the punishment. And I love the fact that I am saved. Amen. But sometimes we don't get nearly as excited about the Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of Christ means that his kingdom is in your heart. His kingdom is on this earth. And if you call him your savior, you must also call him your Lord and you must follow after him as you would follow after a king because that's who he is. That's who they they, they said would come. And that's who John the Baptist said is coming, a king. Whenever John the Baptist talks about kingdom, it would have had some very specific, um, or it would have had certain messages, certain ideas that it would have entailed to those who are listening. First of all, whenever he talked about kingdom, they would have thought about liberation. The Jews at this time were an occupied nation. They did not have their own government. I know they had a king and they had their Sanhedrin and they had their council, but ultimately those were just figureheads. Who ruled the Jews, who ruled Israel, who ruled Judah was the Romans. And what the Romans said, that's what went. And so whenever they thought, whenever John the Baptist said, a kingdom is coming, they are saying we will be liberated from the Romans who rule over us. The Jews had been ruled over. The Jews had been enslaved at this point for several hundred years. Really, ever since the the, uh, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by Babylon, since that time, Israel had never returned to being a fully independent government. It had always been enslaved. It had always belonged to another country. And so they're looking forward to this liberation. A kingdom would also bring security. You know, the Romans, because the Jews belonged to the Romans at this point, the Romans could march into their city and destroy it any time they wanted. The Israelite people were not allowed to keep their own army. They were not allowed to keep their own military force. The Romans could do what they want, when they wanted. In fact, they would march into the city and destroy it in the temple in 70 AD. And so the coming of a kingdom, this coming of a king would bring security to the nation. And finally, it would, be, it would bring prosperity. 
It would bring prosperity. The way that the Romans used to own other nations is that they would levy incredibly high tax rates. They would crush the nations that they conquered with high tax rates. And the reason being, the way that the Romans thought is if they don't have money, then they can't raise an army to fight against us. And quite frankly, that worked for several hundred years. So the Jews at this time, at the time that they were listening to John the Baptist, they were most of them were living hand to mouth. They couldn't save. They had no prosperity. Most of what they grew and produced, it was shipped off as taxes to Rome. And what wasn't shipped to Rome was probably sent to the temple as a temple tax. So they had very, very little property of their own. The coming of a kingdom would bring prosperity. Now, did Jesus bring any of these three things? Some of you, as you look at this, you may respond, no. He did not bring liberation. The Jews continued to be a conquered nation. In fact, they wouldn't become independent until after World War II. They would not gain independence because of Jesus, uh, because of Jesus coming. They would not gain security. 70 AD, the Romans would march in and destroy the city and slaughter the Jews and destroy the temple. They didn't gain uh, security. They didn't gain prosperity. They were no better off when Jesus came than when he left. However, what we're going to see now is that Jesus did bring these things, just not maybe in the way that we were anticipating. The second great truth here that John the Baptist teaches is that the kingdom is heavenly. The kingdom is heavenly. Go back to what his message was. He says, repent for the kingdom of what? Heaven. The kingdom of heaven is what he is talking about. You see, all these three things, liberation, security, prosperity, the Jews at that time, even the God-fearing Jews, were expecting an earthly political leader. This is why they were so surprised by Jesus. This is, this is one of the things that he made him a stumbling block to them to believe in. Because they expected this king, this ruler, this political person, this second David, who would come and unite the nation and build a great army and build great wealth and expand the nation and free them from the Romans. This is what the people anticipated. And yet Jesus brought none of that physically. Why? Because the kingdom he brought was not the kingdom of this earth. It was not a political party. It was not measured by geographical boundaries or population, but it is a heavenly kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. I want you to go back to those three ideas, liberation, security, and prosperity. Did Jesus bring liberation? Absolutely. He liberated us from our sin. He died upon the cross so that we might not die. When we were alienated from God, when we were enemies of God, he stepped into our place of punishment. And when we were enslaved to our sin and to our flesh and to our fleshly desires, Jesus Christ died so that we might have a new heart and regeneration and so that we might be freed from sin. That's why Jesus came. If you're struggling with sin in your life right now, the first question to ask is, are you a believer? Because listen to me, I don't care how hard you struggle or how many times you beat that sin, you will never be freed from sin until you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're struggling with sin, take heart from this. The battle is won. 
The battle was won by Jesus Christ upon the cross. And within you, you have the power to conquer sin, to no longer live according to the flesh. You see, Jesus did bring liberation because he recreated our hearts so that we could be freed from the power of sin and from the power of death. Security. Did Jesus bring security? Absolutely. Because you know what? When you belong to Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from his love. Nothing that can separate you from his love. And, and that's not just Baptist dogma. Okay, I'm not just going off here on Baptist dogma. That's in the Bible. That's Romans chapter 8. For there is nothing, no height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything that can separate us from the love of the Father. Amen? When you belong to God, he will not let you go. Is there security in Christ? Absolutely. Why? Because how God views you isn't dependent upon what you have done or what you have accomplished. It's dependent upon what Christ did on the cross. And Christ's final words were what? It is finished. Not, it is beginning. Not, I'm going to start it and then they got to work the rest of the way through it. It is finished. And Hebrews says that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Why does he sit? Because if your trust in him, no, if your trust is in him, no more work must be done. The full payment has been paid and the full price has been paid. And that gives us security. That gives us security. Now, does that mean that we're never going to face any trials in life? No, absolutely not. But we can have joy. And here's why. If Christ is in our heart, we know where we're going, right? If Christ is in our heart, we can face all things because at the end of the day, we know where we're going, not because of how we were baptized, not because of what rules we followed, not because of a prayer we prayed, but for the simple reason that Christ saved us. Amen? And that's the beauty of the gospel. So he absolutely, he brings security. Does he bring prosperity? Yes. Now, I know some of you are thinking here, well, he sure didn't bring prosperity to me over the past year, right? Maybe you're looking at your retirement account. Maybe you're looking at your bank account. Maybe you're looking at your statements and you're like, what prosperity are you talking about? But remember, Christ primarily came. The kingdom is heavenly. The kingdom is heavenly. He gives us spiritual prosperity. What do I mean by spiritual prosperity? Well, what I mean is when you become a believer in Christ, you are showered with gifts from heaven. You are given spiritual gifts that will equip you and allow you to be his missionaries here on this earth. You are given the full set of the armor of God. I don't know what a full set of armor goes for on eBay these days, but I imagine that's pretty valuable, right? We are given the full armor of God to defend us against temptation and to defend us against the flesh. We are given the gift of God's word. Have you ever thought about what a gift this is? The Bible? The Bible in your language? The language that you dream in? You know, this, this Bible was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and in Greek, and yet we can read it in the language that you and I dream in. What a beautiful gift that is. I know sometimes I've felt really mad at God, and I've been like, God, why can't you speak to me in a burning bush? That's really cool. And God says, I have. You can read about it. Moses didn't have that. Luke didn't have that. Paul didn't have that. What we have, we have more information. We have greater access to God than any generation of believers before us. And that is a treasure to be prized. That's beautiful. And by the way, those gifts can be physical. How many of you here are healthy? How many here are breathing? (laughs) Right? 
We're alive, and that in and of itself is a gift. Family is a gift. Being able to enjoy good food, that is a gift. We have prosperity in the Lord. We have prosperity in Him, but that prosperity is Christ coming. And what does He say? He says, I have come that you may have life, and what? Have it abundantly. Live a full life. Christ has given us the ability to live a full life in him to experience all the riches of his grace and his glory. If you're a believer and you're dissatisfied with your amount of prosperity in Christ, then maybe you need to change your definition of prosperity, right? Maybe you need to start looking at that equation in a different way. Maybe you're desiring and wanting the wrong things. Is there no physical aspect to this kingdom? Is it a purely spiritual kingdom? Well, no, there is a physical aspect. And that's what brings me to my third point here. This kingdom is already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Once again, let's go back to John, what John says. He says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. I'm not going to bore you with grammar here, uh, but in the original Greek, that is in the perfect tense. The only reason you need to understand that is because what the perfect tense is, it is a past action that has continuing significance into today and into the future. A past action that has continuing significance into today and into the future. Okay? The kingdom of God has come. It happened at a defined point and moment in time. It happened with Christ's life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. The kingdom came, but it is also still coming. It is a continuing aspect. It is yet to fully arrive. We as the believers, as the remnant, as those who are here on earth to look to the Savior, we can experience some of the benefits of this kingdom, but we are still looking forward to a day when the kingdom is full revealed. You see, Jesus will come back. He will come back physically. There will be a resurrection. Those who have gone first will be raised from the dead to meet Christ, and those who are still here will be transformed in an instant to be with him. That is coming, and Christ will establish his throne. There will be a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, and then there will be a physical kingdom and a physical rule and a physical king, and we will know Christ one-on-one because sin has been completely done away with. That is the kingdom that is already, but not yet. You see, we're like Israel who was freed from Egypt. And yet, even though Israel was freed from Egypt, did they get to march right into the promised land? No, there was 40 years in the wilderness they had to go through. That's where we are now. We're in the wilderness. We've been freed. Freedom has come. Liberation has come. The kingdom has come, but we are not in the promised land. That's not yet. Already, but not Yet. To close this up, you might be asking yourself, how can I be a part of this kingdom? This sounds exciting. How can I be a part of this kingdom? John the Baptist, he says at the very beginning, we go back to that very first word, it is a command that he gives to the people who are listening, repent. Repent. Repent is a very important word because it completely changes its meaning with the way that Christians begin to use it. Repent comes from, really has two different meanings. In a Greek meaning, repent simply meant to change your mind. If you were to repent, it meant to change your mind. But in a Hebrew sense of meaning, repent meant to turn around. 
Well, what the Christians did is they begin using this word, they combine this word, and they form a new Christian word to describe something that is, that is Christian-like. And it talks about a transformation of your heart and mind. Repentance is complete submission to God the Father. Repentance is not just confession. Repentance and confession are two different things. Confession is acknowledging that you're wrong. Repentance is doing something about it. Okay. Once again, the mental word picture that the Bible gives us is that repentance is walking in one direction, Christ coming and showing us a way, and then turning around and walking in the opposite direction. Many of us, here's what we think of repentance. We think repentance is this, right? Just stopping. Repentance is turning around and looking over our shoulder. That's not repentance. John is talking about commitment. John is talking about a change in life. John is talking about a complete reorientation of who you are and what you're doing. And the result of that is a regenerated heart. Repentance gives us access into the kingdom of God. I, we, we studied this, uh, this was a long time ago, and I know you slept back then, but we studied the book of Hosea. And one of the major elements of the book of Hosea, there were four major elements. One of the major elements of the book of Hosea was the element of repentance. Remember what we talked about? Repentance is the key that gives us access to the gift of grace and salvation. That's how we have access to it. Well, here, it's the same image going on here. Uh, this is your uh, naturalization papers into the kingdom of God, if you will. This is how you become a citizen. You have a life change and you have a turnaround. Here's what I'm worried about, and here's why I stress this, and here's why I bring this up, is I think we have a lot of people. We at the Baptist Church, man, we're really good, especially with kids, of getting them excited and getting them prayed up and making sure that they accept Jesus and getting them dunked, Right? getting them baptized. We're really good about that. But here's what I'm worried about. I'm here. I'm worried that there's a lot of people who just sit in the pew and they feel like they can catch Christianity. They can absorb it. And so they see their friends go down. They say, oh, I need to make a decision for Christ. I'm nine years old. I've heard my friends say the words. I know what I'm supposed to say. I'm going to say the words. Don't really know what I'm saying. I'll get dunked because that looks fun. But they never actually have that life change. They never actually have that moment where Jesus becomes their Lord and Savior. And I can't tell you how many people where they've had that grace moment where the light shines down and it hits them and they say, I knew about God, but I never knew God. And there's a difference. There's a difference. One is religion. And everyone can give you religion. You can go to a Muslim and get religion. The other is a relationship. And only Christ can give you a relationship with the Father. You can't absorb salvation. It is a choice that you must make, and repentance is a part of that process that God leads us through. When we get to the point where we turn away from our sins, we repent of our sins, we say, God, I am a sinner, and I know that you are better, and I'm going to follow after you, and I want new life in you. That's how we gain access to this wonderful kingdom that is here. Christ's birth is what allows us to have that that kingdom. This is where it begins. And this is why I believe this is a Christmas message. Because if there's one important aspect to the Christmas story, it's that the king came. The king was born, was born in a manger. And you see, we have no excuse anymore. When the king is here, you have two options. You can follow after him or you can reject him. You can bow down before him or you can live in rebellion to him. In this world, those are the only two options. 
There are those who follow the kingdom. There are those who chase after him. And then there are those who live in rebellion, following after false idols, false gods, false kings. As Jesus Christ says, there will come a day when you will pay for that choice to reject me. But for now, his arms are open. I want to give you that opportunity to maybe ask Jesus into your heart for the first time, to maybe come and talk to me and say and, and, and tell me about your salvation experience, and, 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 and we can talk about if that salvation experience was genuine or not. Maybe to just come before this altar, fall down on your knees, and say, God, I love that you're, savior, you're my Savior. Please help me to view you as my Lord as well. The Holy Spirit's going to lead you to make a decision. The Holy Spirit's going to lead your heart in a direction. And I pray that you will respond to the Holy Spirit, and you'll make that decision. Would you pray with me?